Thursday, January 6, 1944. Dearest Kitty, My longing for someone to talk to has become so unbearable that I somehow took it into my head to select Peter for this role. On a few occasions when I have gone to Peter's room during the day, I've always thought it was nice and cozy, but Peter's too polite to show someone the door when they're bothering him, so I've never dared to stay long. I've always been afraid he'd think I was a pest. I've been looking for an excuse to linger in his room and get him talking without his noticing, and yesterday I got my chance. Peter, you see, is currently going through a crossword puzzle craze, and he doesn't do anything else all day. I was helping him, and we soon wound up sitting across from each other at his table, Peter on the chair and me on the divan. It gave me a wonderful feeling when I looked into his dark blue eyes and saw how bashful my unexpected visit had made him. I could read his innermost thoughts, and in his face I saw a look of helplessness and uncertainty as to how to behave, and at the same time a flicker of awareness of his masculinity. I saw his shyness, and I melted. I wanted to say, tell me about yourself, look beneath my chatty exterior but I found that it was easier to think of questions than to ask them. The evening came to a close, and nothing happened, except that I told him about the article on blushing. Not what I wrote you, of course, just that he would grow more secure as he got older. That night I lay in my bed and cried my eyes out. All the while, I made sure no one could hear me. The idea that I had to beg Peter for favors was simply revolting. But people will do almost anything to satisfy their longings. Take me, for example. I've made up my mind to visit Peter more often and, somehow, get him to talk to me. You mustn't think I'm in love with Peter, because I'm not. If the Van Dans had had a daughter instead of a son, I'd have tried to make friends with her. This morning I woke up just before seven and immediately remembered what I'd been dreaming about. I was sitting on a chair and across from me was Peter. Peter Schiff. We were looking at a book of drawings by Mary Boss. The dream was so vivid I can even remember some of the drawings, but that wasn't all. The dream went on. Peter's eyes suddenly met mine, and I stared for a long time into those velvety brown eyes. Then he said very softly, If I'd only known, I'd have come to you long ago. I turned abruptly away, overcome by emotion, and then I felt a soft Oh, so cool and gentle cheek against mine, and it felt so good, so good. At that point, I woke up, still feeling his cheek against mine and his brown eyes staring deep into my heart, so deep that he could read how much I loved him and how much I still do. Again, my eyes filled with tears, and I was sad because I'd lost him once more, and yet at the same time glad because I knew with certainty that Peter is still the only one for me. It's funny, but I often have such vivid images in my dreams. One night I saw Grammy, so clearly that I could even make up her skin of soft, crinkly velvet. Another time Grandma appeared to me as a guardian angel. After that, it was Nelly, who still symbolizes to me the suffering of my friends as well as that of Jews in general, so that when I'm praying for her, I'm also praying for all the Jews and all those in need. And now Peter, my dearest Peter, I've never had such a clear mental image of him. I don't need a photograph. I can see him most over. Yours, Anne. Friday, January 7th, 1944. Dearest Kitty, I'm such an idiot. 
I forgot that I haven't yet told you the story of my one true love. When I was a little girl, way back in kindergarten, I took a liking to Sally Kimmel. His father was gone, and he and his mother lived with an aunt. One of Sally's cousins was a good-looking, slender, dark-haired boy named Happy, who later turned out to look like a movie idol and aroused more admiration than a short, comical, chubby Sally. For a long time, we went everywhere together. But aside from that, my love was unrequited until Peter crossed my path. I had an out-and-out -out crush on him. He liked me too, and we were inseparable for one whole summer. I can still see us walking hand in hand through our neighborhood, Peter in the white cotton suit and me in the short summer dress. At the end of the summer vacation, he went to the seventh grade at the middle school, while I was in the sixth grade at the grammar school. He'd pick me up on the way home, or I'd pick him up. Peter was the ideal boy, tall, good-looking, and slender, with a serious, quiet, and intelligent face. He had dark hair, beautiful brown eyes, ruddy cheeks, and a nicely pointed nose. I was crazy about his smile, which made him look so boyish and mischievous. I'd gone away to the countryside during summer vacation, and when I came back, Peter was no longer at his old address. He'd moved and was living with a much older boy, who apparently had told him I was just a kid, because Peter stopped seeing me. I loved him so much that I didn't want to face the truth. I kept clinging to him until the day I finally realized that if I continued to chase after him, people would say I was boy crazy. The years went by. Peter hung around with girls his own age and no longer bothered to say hello to me. I started school at a Jewish lyceum, and several boys in my class were in love with me. I enjoyed it and felt honored by their attentions, but that was all. Later on, Hello had a terrible crush on me, but as I've already told you, I never fell in love again. There's a saying, time heals all wounds. That's how it was with me. I told myself I'd forgotten Peter and no longer liked him in the least, but my memories of him were so strong that I had to admit to myself that the only reason I no longer liked him was that I was jealous of the other girls. This morning I realized that nothing has changed. On the contrary, as I've grown older and more mature, my love has grown along with me. I can understand now that Peter thought I was childish, and yet it still hurts to think he'd forgotten me completely. I saw his face so clearly, and knew for certain that no one but Peter could have stuck in my mind that way. I've been in an utter state of confusion today. When Father kissed me this morning, I wanted to shout, Oh, if only you were Peter. I've been thinking of him constantly, and all day long I've been repeating to myself, Oh, Peter, my darling, darling Peter. Where can I find help? I simply have to go on living and praying to God that if we ever get out of here, Peter's path will cross mine and he'll gaze into my eyes, read the love in them and say, Oh, Anne, if I'd only known, I'd have come to you long ago. Once when Father and I were talking about sex, he said I was too young to understand that kind of design, but I thought I did understand it, and now I'm sure I do. Nothing is as dear to me now as my darling Peter. I saw my face in the mirror, and it looked so different. My eyes were clear and deep, my cheeks were rosy, which they hadn't been in weeks. My mouth was much softer. I looked happy, and yet there was something so sad in my expression that the smile immediately faded from my lips. I'm not happy, since I know Peter is not thinking of me, and yet I can still feel his beautiful eyes gazing at me and his cool, soft cheek against mine. Oh, Peter, Peter, how am I ever going to free myself from your image? Wouldn't anyone who took your place be a poor substitute? I love you.
with a love so great that it simply couldn't keep growing inside my heart, but had to leap out and reveal itself in all its magnitude. A week ago, even a day ago, if you'd asked me, which of your friends do you think you'd be most likely to manage, I'd have answered Sally, since he makes me feel good, peaceful, and safe. But now I'd cry, Peter, because I love him with all my heart and all my soul. I surrender myself completely, except for that one thing. He may touch my face, but that's as far as it goes. This morning, I imagine I was in the front attic with Peter, sitting on the floor by the windows, and after talking for a while, we both began to cry. Moments later, I felt his mouth and his wonderful cheek. Oh, Peter, come to me. Think of me, my dearest Peter. Wednesday, January twelfth, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, Bep's been back for the last two weeks, though her sister won't be allowed back at school until next week. Bep herself spent two days in bed with a bad cold. Meep and Yan were also out for two days with upset stomachs. I'm currently going through a dance and ballet craze, and I'm diligently practicing my dance steps every evening. I've made an ultra modern dance costume out of a lacy lavender slip belonging to Mumsy. Bias tape is threaded through the top and tied just above the bust. A pink corded ribbon completes the ensemble. I tried to turn my tennis shoes into ballet slippers, but with no success. My stiff limbs are well on the way to becoming as limber as they used to be. A terrific exercise is to sit on the floor, place a heel in each hand, and raise both legs in the air. I have to sit on a cushion because otherwise my poor backside really takes a beating. Everyone here is reading a book called A Cloudless Morning. Mother thought it was extremely good because it describes a number of adolescent problems. I thought to myself, a bit ironically, why don't you take more interest in your own adolescence first? I think Mother believes that Margaret and I have a better relationship with our parents than anyone in the whole wide world. And that no mother is more involved in the lives of her children than she is. She must have my sister in mind, since I don't believe Margaret has the same problems and thoughts as I do. Far be it from me to point out to mother that one of her daughters is not at all what she imagines. She'd be completely bewildered, and anyway, she'd never be able to change. I'd like to spare her that grief, especially since I know that everything would remain the same. Mother does sense that Margaret loves her much more than I do. But she thinks I'm just going through a phase. Margaret's gotten much nicer. She seems a lot different than she used to be. She's not nearly as catty these days, and is becoming a real friend. She no longer thinks of me as a little kid who doesn't count. It's funny, but I can sometimes see myself as others see me. I take a leisurely look at the person called Anne Frank and browse through the pages of her life as though she were a stranger. Before I came here. When I didn't think about things as much as I do now, I occasionally had the feeling that I didn't belong to Mumsy, Pim, and Margaret, and that I would always be an outsider. I sometimes went around for six months at a time, pretending I was an orphan. Then I chastised myself for playing the victim, when really I'd always been so fortunate. After that, I'd force myself to be friendly for a while. Every morning, when I heard footsteps on the stairs, I hoped it would be Mother coming to say good morning. I greeted her warmly because I honestly did look forward to her affectionate glance, but then she'd snap at me for having made some comment or other. On the way home, I'd make excuses for her, telling myself that she had so many worries. I'd arrive home in high spirits, chatting nineteen to the dozen, until the events of the morning would repeat themselves, and I'd leave the room with my school bag in my hand and a pensive look on my face.
Sometimes I decide to stay angry, but then I always had so much to talk about after school that I forget my resolution and want mother to stop whatever she was doing and lend a willing ear. Then the time would come once more when I no longer listened for the steps on the stairs and felt lonely and cried into my pillow every night. Everything has gotten much worse here, but you already knew that. Now God has sent someone to help me, Peter. I fondle my pendant, press it to my lips, and think, "What do I care? Peter is mine, and nobody knows it." With this in mind, I can rise above every nasty remark. Which of the people here would suspect that so much is going on in the mind of a teenage girl? Saturday, January fifteenth, nineteen forty-four. My dearest Kitty, there's no reason for me to go on describing all our quarrels and arguments down to the last detail. It's enough to tell you that we've divided many things like meat and fats and oils, and are frying our own potatoes. Recently, we've been eating a little extra rye bread because by four o'clock we're so hungry for dinner we can barely control our rumbling stomachs. Mother's birthday is rapidly approaching. She received some extra sugar from Mr. Kugler. Which sparked off jealousy on the part of the Van Dans because Mrs. Van D didn't receive any on her birthday. But what's the point of boring you with harsh words, spiteful conversations, and tears when you know they bore us even more? Mother has expressed a wish, which isn't likely to come true any time soon, not to have seen Mr. Van Dans' face for two whole weeks. I wonder if everyone who shares a house sooner or later ends up at odds with their fellow residents. Or have we just had a stroke of bad luck? At meal time, when Duso helps himself to a quarter of the half-filled gravy boat and leaves the rest of us to do without, I lose my appetite and feel like jumping to my feet, knocking him off his chair and throwing him out the door. Are most people so stingy and selfish? I've gained some insight into human nature since I came here, which is good. But I've had enough for the present. Peter says the same. The war is going to go on despite our quarrels and our longing for freedom and fresh air. So we should try to make the best of our stay here. I'm preaching, but I also believe that if I live here much longer, I'll turn into a dried-up old beanstalk. And all I really want is to be an honest-to-goodness teenager. Yours, Anne. Wednesday evening, January nineteenth, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty. I don't know what's happened, but since my dream, I keep noticing how I've changed. By the way, I dreamed about Peter again last night, and once again, I felt his eyes penetrate mine. But this dream was less vivid and not quite as beautiful as the last. You know that I always used to be jealous of Margaret's relationship with Father. There's not a trace of my jealousy left now. I still feel hurt when Father's nerves cause him to be unreasonable toward me, but then I think I can't blame you for being the way you are. You talk so much about the minds of children and adolescents, but you don't know the first thing about them. I long for more than Father's affection, more than his hugs and kisses. Isn't it awful of me to be so preoccupied with myself? Shouldn't I, who want to be good and kind, forgive them first? I forgive Mother too, but every time she makes a sarcastic remark or laughs at me. It's all I can do to control myself. I know I'm far from being what I should. Would I ever be? And Frank. P.S. Father asked if I told you about the cake for Mother's birthday. She received a real mocha cake, pre-war quality, from the office. It was a real nice day. But at the moment, there's no room in my head for things like that. Saturday, January twenty-second, nineteen forty-four. Dearest Kitty, can you tell me why people go to such lengths to hide their real selves? Or why I always behave very differently when I'm in the company of others, 
Why do people have so little trust in one another? I know there must be a reason, but sometimes I think it's horrible that you can't ever confide in anyone, but even those closest to you. It seems as if I've grown up since the night I had that dream, as if I've become more independent. You'll be amazed when I tell you that even my attitude toward the Van Dans has changed. I've stopped looking at all the discussions and arguments from my family's biased point of view. What's brought on such a radical change? Well, you see, I suddenly realized that if mother had been different, if she'd been a real mom, our relationship would have been very, very different. Mrs. Van Dan is by no means a wonderful person, yet half the arguments could have been avoided if mother hadn't been so hard to deal with every time they got onto a tricky subject. Mrs. Van Dan does have a good point, though. You can talk to her. She may be selfish, stingy, and underhanded, but she'll readily back down as long as you don't provoke her and make her unreasonable. This tactic doesn't work every time, but if you're patient, you can keep trying and see how far you get. All the conflicts about our upbringing, about not pampering children, about the food, about everything, absolutely everything, might have taken a different turn if we remain open and on friendly terms instead of always seeing the worst side. I know exactly what you're going to say, Kitty. But Anne, are these words really coming from your lips? From you, who have had to put up with so many unkind words from upstairs? From you, who are aware of all the injustices? And yet they are coming from me. I want to take a fresh look at things and form my own opinion, not just at my parents, as in the proverb, the apple never falls far from the tree. I want to re-examine the Van Dans and decide for myself what's true and what's been blown out of proportion. If I wind up being disappointed in them, I can always side with father and mother. But if not, I can try to change their attitude. And if that doesn't work, I'll have to stick with my own opinions and judgment. I'll take every opportunity to speak openly to Mrs. Van D about our many differences and not be afraid, despite my reputation as a smart aleck, to offer my impartial opinion. I won't say anything negative about my own family, though that doesn't mean I won't defend them if somebody else does. And as of today, my gossiping is a thing of the past. Up to now, I was absolutely convinced that the Van Dans were entirely to blame for the quarrels, but now I'm sure the fault was largely ours. We were right as far as the subject matter was concerned, but intelligent people should have more insight into how to deal with others. I hope I've got at least a touch of that insight, and that I'll find an occasion to put it to good use. Yours, Anne. Monday, January 24th, 1944. Dearest Kitty, a very strange thing has happened to me. Before I came here, whenever anyone at home or at school talked about sex, they were either secretive or disgusting. Any words having to do with sex were spoken in low whisper, and kids who weren't in the know were often laughed at. That struck me as odd, and I often wondered why people were so mysterious or obnoxious when they talked about the subject. But because I couldn't change things, I said as little as possible or asked my girlfriends for information. After I'd learned quite a lot, Mother once said to me, Anne, let me give you some good advice. Never discuss this with boys, and if they bring it up, don't answer them. I still remember my exact reply. No, of course not, I exclaimed. Imagine, and nothing more was said. When we first went into hiding, Father often told me about things I'd rather have heard from Mother, and I learned the rest from books or things I picked up in conversations. 
Peter Van Dam wasn't ever as obnoxious about this subject as the boys at school, or maybe just once or twice in the beginning. Though he wasn't trying to get me to talk, Mrs. Van Dam once told us she never discussed these matters with Peter, and as far as she knew, neither had her husband. Apparently, she didn't even know how much Peter knew or where he got his information. Yesterday, when Margaret, Peter, and I were peeling potatoes, the conversation somehow turned to Bosch. We're still not sure whether Bosch is a boy or girl, are we? I asked. Yes, we are. He answered. Bosch is Tomcat. I began to laugh. Some Tomcat if he's pregnant. Peter and Margaret joined in the laughter. You see, a month or two ago, Peter informed us that Bosch was sure to have kittens before long because her stomach was rapidly swelling. However, Bosch's fat tummy turned out to be due to a bunch of stolen bones. No kittens were growing inside, much less about to be born. Peter felt called upon to defend himself against my accusation. Come with me; you can see for yourself. I was horsing around with the cat one day, and I could definitely see it was a he. Unable to restrain my curiosity, I went with him to the warehouse. Bosch, however, wasn't receiving visitors at that hour, and was nowhere in sight. We waited for a while, but when it got cold, we went back upstairs. Later that afternoon, I heard Peter go downstairs for the second time. I mustered the courage to walk through the silent house by myself and reach the warehouse. Bosch was on the packing table, playing with Peter, who was getting ready to put him on the scale and weigh him. Hi, do you want to have a look? Without any preliminaries, he picked up the cat, turned him over on his back, deftly held his head and paws, and began the lesson. This is the male sexual organ. These are a few stray hairs, and that's his backside. The cat flipped himself over and stood up on his little white feet. If any other boy had pointed out the male sexual organ to me, I would never have given him a second glance. But Peter went on talking in a normal voice about what is otherwise a very awkward subject. Nor did he have any ulterior motives. By the time he'd finished, I felt so much at ease that I started acting normally too. We played with Bosch, had a good time, chatted a bit, and finally sauntered through the long warehouse to the door. Were you there when Moshi was fixed? Yeah, sure. It doesn't take long. They give the cat an anesthetic, of course. Do they take something else? No, the fat just snips the tube. There's nothing to see on the outside. I had to give up my nerve to ask questions, since it wasn't as normal as I thought. Peter, the German word "geschlechtsteil" means sexual organ, doesn't it? But then the male and female ones have different names. I know that the female one is a vagina. That I know, but I don't know what it's called in males. Oh well, he said. How are we supposed to know these words? Most of the time, we just come across them by accident. Why wait? I'll ask my parents. They know more than I do, and they've had more experience. We were already on the stairs, so nothing more was said. Yes, it really didn't happen. I'd never have talked to a girl about this in such a normal tone of voice. I'm also certain that this isn't what Mother meant when she warned me about boys. All the same, I wasn't exactly my usual self for the rest of the day. When I thought back to our talk, it struck me as odd. But I've learned at least one thing. There are young people, even those of the opposite sex, who can discuss these things naturally without cracking jokes. Is Peter really going to ask his parents a lot of questions? Is he really the way he seemed yesterday? Oh, what do I know? Yours, Anne. Unrequited. Unrequited. Adjective of a feeling, especially love, not returned. 
Smart Alec. Smart Alec. Now, a person who is irritating because they behave as if they know everything. Alteria. Alteria. Adjective. Existing beyond what is obvious or admitted, intentionally hidden.